Coming up, Jeremy Arnold joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV show. Oh, hello, everyone. Hi, it's Ileana Douglas, and uh, welcome to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. And I'm not going to just say hello, Tamara. I'm going to sing, Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love. Ah. My lovely co-host, Tamara. And uh, how is it? Uh, how's it going today? A lot going on. Yeah, things as we are, approach the fall, things are happening in the world. Yes, today. Uh, just the other day was the first day of fall. Yes, we're wearing our fall colors. I know, matching uh, once again. Yeah, florals. It happens I, um, all the time. So last night, there's all these great movies coming out that we're going to talk about. Uh, but last night, I was just completely blown away by uh, Jane Fonda and Five Acts by Susan Lacey, who does oh. all of the American. Uh, I don't know if she does all of them, but I associate her with American Masters and PBS. And it's just oh an incredibly uh, inspiring documentary, well put together. Yeah. Not only in terms of if you love movies and you love Jane Fonda, but just, you know, her role as an activist and her, I, I just really related to it. I think women will relate to this trend, you know, the transitions that, that she has experienced in her um in her life, right? You know the different men that she's been with and how that's affected Shaped things. Mm-hmm. I particularly loved all the stuff when she was with Tom Hayden when they lived in this kind of hippie existence. And it just reminded me of my own childhood, yeah. Like where it was evil that you couldn't have money and it, you embraced oh, right. being poor and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it was like drove around in a Volvo with you know no windows um I've, I also I read a, a just a quick clip that she said that she feels better now than she ever has in her whole life yes because it, it, it's what it talks about this idea of finally getting to be your authentic self yeah she's been kind of talking about that for the last few years about like you know people dreading aging and she's just really finding that equilibrium for herself yes mm-hmm. I well I always envy people that don't I, I feel like I've been on that journey. Who am I? What does it mean? What is my journey mm. with my parents? You know, just trying to understand your ancestors, where you fit in, how do you want to be remembered? Other people are like, what's with the thinking? <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Sometimes I, so I related to her, mm. to her story and looking for things in the different relationships that, um, that she's been with, but my God, she's accomplished so much. When you think of the movies, and I it was, we, we have Jeremy Arnold on today, who can be talking about movies and TCM, and oh, I was so honored to interview her for um, for Turner Classic Movies. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about activism, and that was really great. She's, you know, an intense. It's she. She was someone I was very, very impressed with. Yeah, uh, Jane Fonda. But what other movies um, have you been well, we've looking been, forward to? Jeremy's talking about holiday movies. Yeah, that's what his his book is about. Which so I, I was love. kind of looking at what's coming up uh, in the next you know couple of months that mm-hmm. are Christmas movies specifically. Right. Um, so there's the Nutcracker and the Four Realms, which is a um, uh, Misty Copeland uh-huh. and Morgan Freeman starring it with Mackenzie Foy. Um, a take on the Nutcracker. There's Dr. Seuss's The Grinch with Benedict Cumberbatch. I hope they don't ruin it. I hope are they going to make it politically correct? Oh God, 
I don't even know, but I'm... Wait, as soon as you said a different take, I went, okay, go ahead. Um, Fantastic Beasts, The Crime of the Grindelwald, which is the sequel to the earlier Fantastic Beasts with uh, Zoe Kravitz and Eddie Redmayne and Johnny Depp is in this one. And then the one I'm so looking forward to is Mary Poppins Returns. Of course. can't wait. Yes, I'm looking forward to that, too. That'll be fun. What about, um, I've been asked five times, am I looking forward to A Star is Born? The yes. answer is, eh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm not running out to see it. I did run out to see Les Mis. It's always good to reference a movie two years old, Ileana. I was going to say, is there a I, new I, one? I know, I know. But that's me. <laughs> I, I get to things late. But that I was really excited about that musical because I saw it on Broadway and yes. I really loved it. Um, a Star is Born. It'll be very, um, you know, I, I, I'm curious, but I'm not dying to see it i'll be very you you gotta really i wonder what the story is gonna be right yes as as the way the story has you know transitioned over the different versions yes every Mm -hmm. generation you know we had the janet gaynor version Mm -hmm. i mean personally my favorite is the judy garland Mm -hmm. james mason version that is my absolute favorite um and then we get the streisand version Mm -hmm. and i wonder again if they're going to you know, because the famous ending of the movie is when she yeah. says, I'm Mrs. Norman Maine. And he also walks into the ocean. So <laughs> I don't know. I hope I'm not ruining it for anyone. It's what <laughs> happens in every one. But um, so I'm wondering about that. And will it. Will, so will this. Will all the tropes and the narratives from The Star is Born be there? Yeah. I mean, they really have to walk that line of being true to the original story and right. yet wanting to make it something new and different. So I. You know, I remember the one with Barbara Streisand, and every time, every time Chris Christopherson called her Esther, I, I just was like, <laughs> I don't know if she really looks like an Esther. And that you may want to look for some. In speaking of trivia, in this original, in the Stars Born with Barbara Streisand, in the credits, it says all the wardrobe is from Miss Streisand's own personal closet. Like it has this little a oh, well credit in there so when i did uh grace of my heart i i was trying to phony in some kind of credit like that there yeah. was i we actually had a funny when i was doing grace of my heart i was trying to pay uh homage to all the different musicals that i loved like yes. new york new york and stars born the 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 judy garland one and then i wanted to do a barbara streisand like where she had her hair really curly yes. that was at the end of the movie yeah oh yes and i did my hair we used about four different uh curling devices devices Mm -hmm. and uh my hair and makeup lady Gigi, she was awesome we had such a fun time we came out i we got the perm you know we were so excited and i was walking on the set and allison ander allison ander says to me no this is not a barbara streisand you get back in that trailer and i was like come on allison please please but she said no she wouldn't let me so we went for carly simon so for those in the know I love to do trivia. For me, being in the movies is only an excuse <laughs> to basically put your fantasies on film. Right. In jokes for all my friends. That was Carly Simon. I wanted to do Barbara. Uh, anyway, I digress. Anything else going on in the news? I'm going to go see as I interrupt, as I ask you and interrupt. <laughs> She's my... Which is, I, I come from a loudmouth Italian family. But uh, I'm going to go see tomorrow night the uh, Robert Redford's final screen performance. Oh. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna ask for that billing next time I do a movie. The final her final screen performance. I was just I did a gig on The Simpsons. Yes, I'm absolutely thrilled. So exciting. Uh, mainly, I can't I cannot reveal except to say that I was on The Simpsons and it was incredible. What an honor, and a bigger honor was the thirtieth uh, premiere party that they had at Universal, where they owned Universal. Sure. And it was unbelievable. We got to play games and win Simpson things. And uh, it was. What'd you win? uh, I got a keychain, Krusty the Clown keychain. Got some stuff down. I was trying to get scratchy. Yes. But I I couldn't win him. I I almost had to knock someone out and get scratchy. But I would uh, think you'd be good at arcade games. Were they arcade games? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would think you'd be good at that. I was good at the one, the balloon throw one. I was oh, not good at the, the basketball. No. Yeah. The dart. I was good at the squirt gun one. Exactly. Well, I was super good at that. Similar. Yeah. Similar. Similar theme. But mm. anyway, it was just what an honor it is to be on that show. My goodness. Uh, so that'll be coming up. But I should have asked for that inner final. And her final television performance. Sadly, that'll never happen. <laughs> They're going to have to take a hook and drag me off. And okay, that let's, is okay. Let's let us bring get to our friend Jeremy Arnold, who is awesome and has been a longtime friend of mine. Uh, he is an author. He's a film historian, commentator, works at Turner Classic Movies for the past 16 years. Uh, also in, is involved in doing... Um, uh, hosting at the TCM Film Festival, which we love. He's been on Filmstruck many times, author of two TCM books, which I have in my living room, The Essentials, and his latest coming out October 9th. We're already there. Christmas at the movies. Please welcome my friend Jeremy Arnold. Thank you for being here, Jeremy. It's a pleasure, Ileana. I guess it's the Christmas season already. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, we're our first. We're starting it off because you're you're our, this is your first in a series of what will be your press your press tour, right? That is true. I am right. getting my own mind calibrated back to these Christmas movies. You can make all your and, mistakes here no. <laughs> with me. No, it's funny. I, most of the book was written. Uh, uh, just after the last Christmas season, the first few months of this year. So uh-huh. it was, you know, I was calling friends to talk to them, and no one really wants to talk about Christmas movies when it's February and March. Oh, you're right, yeah. But now um, we're getting ready, but now we're gearing up absolutely. for it. So now we get into it. Yeah, there's nothing more fun than watching a, a Christmas movie. And now we're going to get to Christmas movies, but of course we start with my favorite question, because I've never asked you this. What was the first movie you saw, and who took you to see it? Okay, well, my answer might be a tiny bit of a cheat. Uh, That's okay. Because you can cheat. I will say, I'm sure I saw movies before this one. I mm-hmm. was seven, mm-hmm. but this was this is the first, the earliest movie going experience that is indelible to me, and that was seeing Star Wars on opening night in 1977. Oh my now, god! I was seven years old. Pretty much the target audience, I would yes. say. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Washington D.C. and I'd been begging my father. Uh, who was a big movie buff and yeah. got me interested in film, to take me to see Star Wars. And he really had little interest. But finally, he agreed, and we drove to the Uptown Theater on Connecticut Avenue in Washington, which is still the biggest screen in, in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And the line was going around the block, and he couldn't believe it. So we waited in this line, and we got to the ticket window, and there was one ticket left. 
And I vividly remember... It's my, like a Christmas movie! My, I vividly remember my father saying, well, could he sit on my lap? And somehow he talked the ticket seller and just letting us both go in. And we went in, and there were people on the floor sitting wow. in the aisles. Somehow we found two seats together. I remember this so vividly, very near the front. There were two Indian guys with turbans on their heads sitting next to me. I mean, that's how vivid it, it, it is yeah. in my mind. And... Um, I I've never forgotten it. Um, my father thanked me profusely afterwards for making him go because he loved it too. Wow, yeah, that's when it was really an event, like to see a film like that. Do you think that you? I know I do. Could you carry that emotional excitement with you, like the lights go down? I, no question. Yeah, absolutely. Old, new. You know, it's funny. Those of us who love the classic movies. You know, actors like uh, Robert Mitchum or or Bogart or Catherine Hepburn, they're still working actors in a way because, you know, we we haven't seen all their movies. Every once in a while you see something new from them, even though they're long gone. So it's there's still there's still movies out there we haven't seen from a lot of our favorites because they made so many back then. And I was saying last week when I was talking to Alan Arkish, you you go through periods where you rediscover someone. Like I, you know, I was saying all, all of a sudden I'll like Glenn Ford or all, all of a sudden I discover how much I like Kim Novak or I'll go through a Frank Sinatra phase and, and you, you see new parts to their, you know, to their performance. No question about it. And, uh, or discovering someone that really brand new, like I remember several years ago, thanks to TCM, I discovered Warren William, mm-hmm. who now is a big favorite of a lot of people who love pre-code movies. Uh-huh. That series of pre-code films that he made in yeah. the early thirties are among the best of the whole bunch. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I hope there are others out there to discover <laughs> too. <laughs> were, did you have, when you were growing up, uh, did you have, you know, movie books? I had the film, my Bible in high school was, it was something called the Film Encyclopedia. Mm. And that was all we had. It was mm. gigantic. Is that Ephraim Katz? Yes. I think, yes. I, I, yeah. I remember that book. We there Before the Leonard Maltin guide, there was a sort of a rival. I think it was called Movies on TV or Movies on Television. Right. I later discovered that it, it wasn't nearly as accurate or or good as as Leonard's guides are. Uh-huh. Um, but that was sort of a bible for a while. And um, oh, my father was a big movie buff, so he had you know those the big coffee table book, the Warner Brothers story, the RKO yeah. story. Um, I just loved looking through those, looking at pictures of all the films. So, how did you get involved when you were growing up? Did you uh, want to be you know how does, how does someone become a film? historian well good that's a good question Uh, (laughs) i mean i'll just say that you know again it's back to my father he loved classic films he Mm -hmm. grew up in the 30s 40s 50s and um he especially loved bogart and the warner brothers movies Mm. and so he showed those to me at a very young age uh casablanca was indelible i probably saw that not long after star wars and it had the same effect Mm -hmm. and uh so we he just loved talking movies with me and loved having me discover the ones that he already liked. And at a certain point, he realized that I was seeing films that he'd never even heard of and that I, I surpassed him. Oh, <laughs> oh isn't that, that's always fun when you get to uh, stump someone. <laughs> yes. When they're, you know, the, when you get more things than them. And, so, and then you ended up in, um, you went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which I know very well, and Janine uh, Basinger. How did you decide to go to Wesleyan? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, towards the end of high school, I was um, 
convinced that I wanted to be a space scientist and be and become an astronaut. Mm-hmm. So I drove around New England with my parents looking at colleges, and I only wanted to see the ones that had observatories, you know, big telescopes right. on them. Well, Wesleyan has one, and that's sort of the reason I applied there early and got in, and it, wow. you know, it just felt like the right place for me. Yeah. But then my freshman year, I discovered they had a great film program, and I met Janine Basinger, the yeah. guru, the head of the department, and I was instantly... Uh, you know, I shifted to that. I don't mm-hmm. even think I set foot in the observatory until my sophomore year. <laughs> Did you see many movies uh, off of I mean, Wesleyan? Such an interesting campus, anyway, because it's a combination of like old brick Ivy League and then very modern, uh, you know, seventies early early seventies architecture. I love it. It's a beautiful campus. That's true. It is a mix of those things, and it actually speaks a lot to what Wesleyan is like you know, from the student's perspective, you know, it's a liberal arts college where you're encouraged to, you know, if you're a football star, you could easily be, you know, majoring in uh, biology as well. I mean, there Mm -hmm. are all these sort of um, combinations of things that would be odd somewhere else, but not at Wesleyan. Everyone Mm -hmm. is, everyone does their own thing there and um, is very intellectually motivated uh, in sort of offbeat ways, let's say. Were there, and what theaters did you go to, you know, outside? Did the, uh, I'm, was the Capitol or the Palace still in business then, or the drive-in so, or any no. of those, there any were, of my haunts? Just, there was a, <laughs> there was a multiplex in nearby Meriden. Yes. And uh, a smaller multiplex in Middletown. But really on campus, you could see anything you wanted, old and new movies. There right. There was a film series there that I helped run for the oh, whole time you did? there. Yeah. And what, what kind of movies did you uh, program? Well, we'd show um, new movies on Fridays and Saturdays mm-hmm. and then classics on Wednesdays and Thursdays. That fun. And also a second theater on Fridays. And so it could be anything from a Capra film to uh, Michael Powell, The, the Red Shoes, to mm-hmm. you know whatever new movies were had recently come out a couple months earlier. And the whole campus supported those screenings really well because this was the days really before DVD and certainly yes. before streaming. I so. know. We were still considered oddballs and nerds to be, uh, you know, interested in movies. And all the films were 16 or 35 millimeter. Yeah. So. And then so then how did you transition to start uh, to start writing? The, your first thing was helping. Did you write with Janine? You know, like helped out on some books that she wrote? I did after... Um, uh, I graduated. I made some short films and had some film production jobs and editing jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, I did. I, I helped Janine uh, find photos for some of her books. And I started writing for um, magazines, Movie Maker, the Directors Guild magazine, mm-hmm. and eventually for Turner Classic Movies for their website. And I've written hundreds of um, articles and uh, programming articles for their website on, on different films. And then uh, that transitioned into doing um, the Essentials book and now the Christmas book, a few other things along the way. Yeah. So let's talk about your book now. But you did another book before that. You did a Lawrence of Arabia book. And then you also yeah. did a book on John Stahl, Call of the Heart. The Lawrence of Arabia book is a, a coffee table book about mm-hmm. the making of the film that was included as a supplement to the Blu-ray release, a big box set. I see. Uh, it's the only way you can get that book. But it's a, I, think I mean, I it's a real it, book. It's a hardcover book. I think and... I have it. I'm going to go <laughs> home now. Who knew? I, I think I have that book. And the John Stahl book, uh-huh. um, Stahl, of course, directed Lever to Heaven, among yeah. many other classics. Amazing. That is um, yet to come out. It comes out in oh. about two weeks. And I was one of many contributors. It's, uh-huh. it's a, sort of a scholarly take on his career that was edited by these two British film historians. And I think there are 12 writers who 
we all wrote about one or two films. Isn't it interesting the way film commentary, film criticism has changed? You know, because when I was growing up, everything would be, it'd be very hard to read, very, you know, very movie theory. But then it, it, it felt like it opened up a little bit more, talking about more emotional ways to look at films and things like that. Uh, I agree. And, you know, I think Janine, actually, Janine Basinger is someone who was instrumental, one Mm -hmm. of many, one writer who was instrumental in changing that because her books are not, uh, you know, dense with film theory. She talks, she taught and also writes about film in a way that has to, you know, she's trying to connect the audience emotional experience of the film to Mm -hmm. how that experience emotionally was created by the filmmakers through choices that they made. So a very practical kind of look at the way movies work. Are there any movies that you just can't figure out or get into? Like for me, it's The Good Earth. I've tried to watch it. I try and I just... I don't know. I have a problem. Is there a certain media that are well, actually, hard to find a way in? I'm, I'm with you on The Good Earth. And I, I te- the first TCM Film Festival, they showed that. And, um, uh, you know, in the Egyptian theater, and I, I gave it a good try. But, yeah, I'm I'm with you there. I don't know. There are some, some classic films that I guess we're supposed to love that I don't really. One of mine is The Razor's Edge. With oh, Jerome with Tyrone Power. Yeah, with Tyrone I Power. Do you find it stiff? I find it kind of pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, just I me. love Tyrone Power. <laughs> me too. But it's got Gene Tierney in it. I know. I know. Uh, and Herbert and, Marshall. Uh, it, and Ann Baxter. Yes. It, the acting is pretty good. It, it's a little, I, I, I see what you mean. But, well, well, then what about the Bill Murray version? <laughs> I, guess, <laughs> I guess it only went downhill after that. That's true. But um, that's funny when you write for things and you're trying to find a way to make it kind of fun or palatable and go maybe i'll talk about the director well certainly my approach with this christmas in the movies book was for each film i just thought about what is it about this film that makes it so popular to Mm. audiences like what is it that keeps drawing us back the experience that we're getting and then in the case of other titles that really are not that um well known but i think still qualify as christmas movies I just I was interested in uh, sort of exploring what makes those Christmas movies because mm-hmm. they're all a little different. I know the uh, so we're going to get to your Christmas movie but now. The one before I'm, I want to talk because it's another really really fun book, the fifty two essential films, and that was something. And didn't you do a show with Robert where you talked? Well, I was I did not do the show. I was not on the show, but uh, Robert Osborne was the host of that show of that for show, most okay. of its years. The first two years were hosted by others, actually. I see. Um, I think the first year was uh, Rob Reiner, and mm-hmm. Sidney Pollack mm-hmm. did one on his own, too. And then Robert Osborne started hosting with a celebrity guest each I see. season. And um, the, that book, The Essentials, was uh, designed to be a companion to the series, I where see. the book would sort of highlight 52 of the movies that had been shown on The Essentials over the I years. I see, I see. Um, so it's not really, the book wasn't meant to be the 52 greatest films of all time, but right. of, maybe 52 of the greatest films. Yes, and of those, did you do you have any personal favorites of, of some of those that they showed? Well, my favorite movie is Casablanca. I yeah, know that's, that's not great... exactly an original choice, but, no, you know, it's... it's a, so help me. Uh, it's it's that way for a reason. But uh, I was also really glad to in, include in that book some lesser known movies, um, maybe not lesser known to, to you or real mm-hmm. hardcore film watchers, but Gun Crazy, yeah. you know, which is, 
you know, it, it's a little low-budget B-movie that is a masterpiece, but it sits, you can you can put it alongside Casablanca and The Best Years of Our Lives and Gone with the Wind and these, you know, really big, big Hollywood studio films. And in terms of audience engagement and, and, and certainly entertainment value, it's their equal, no mm-hmm. question. Okay, so let's talk about your Christmas book coming out soon, in a week. Christmas in the movies. What made you decide to do a Christmas book? Well, I'll be honest. It was my editor's idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, this interviews. Where's your editor? Well, my, I, the, the Essentials book was done, and yeah. we were talking about another book. Because TCM has a, a publishing deal with Running Press, and there's mm-hmm. a whole series of these film books that have come out, aside mm-hmm. from the Essentials and the Christmas book. And one idea that my editor had been kicking around with Turner was a book on Christmas movies, and she uh, needed a writer for it. And when she suggested it, it really intrigued me because, um, you know, I I love holiday movies as as much as anyone, but I was interested in the idea that uh, a Christmas movie doesn't just have to be something that is 100% light and frothy and upbeat Mm -hmm. and, you know, cute, as some people might say. Uh, sure, there are some that might be described like that, but it also Christmas the season encompasses many different types of reactions and emotions for people in real mm-hmm. life. You know, joy and despair. It, it heightens mm-hmm. both ends of the spectrum, and I was kind of fascinated to explore, you know, both types of films. You know, films along that entire spectrum, maybe even some that do both at the same time. And um, so the idea of sort of figuring out what a Christmas movie is was something that what is a christmas movie (laughs) (laughs) do tell well it's funny christmas movie it it's not a genre everyone knows everyone will agree what a musical is or a western right but everyone has their own definition of christmas movie Mm -hmm. and people love to argue over whether die hard is a christmas movie right which of course it is or uh, (laughs) or or whether this or that other film is um you know i it it says more about the audience member than the film itself when mm-hmm. we have those types of, of uh, disagreements. But to me, I decided that my definition is that it has to be a film where Christmas or the holiday season plays a meaningful role in the story, the right. storytelling. It becomes it, a character. Yeah, it, it can't just be a setting or a backdrop. Right. There are lots of films that have... Uh, Chris, that's, are, that take place during that time, but mm-hmm. the season really has nothing to do with the story. Um, but what if there's one scene that does? What if the whole movie does? What if the film opened in July and not December? Does that mean it can't be a Christmas movie? Well, It's a Wonderful Life um, did not open at Christmas. Uh, Beyond Tomorrow didn't. Um, there, there are lots of films in the book that opened in the spring or summer. And some weren't even marketed with their Christmas content. And others were and didn't really do that well. So yeah. they're all variations. That's so interesting. So you mentioned It's a Wonderful Life, which I think is my favorite Christmas movie. It has to be. It's mine, too. I like to watch it every year. I figure if you want to watch it every year, I I have to watch It's a Wonderful Life and The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. It's a pretty... Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer has kind of fallen off, even though I do like Burr Lives. But um, what is it about, you know, that's so enduring about It's a Wonderful Life? Well, I call it the ultimate Christmas movie. And the Mm -hmm. reason is because... You know, I was talking a, mil- a moment ago about the spectrum of emotion. Right. It really does cover all the bases. Mm-hmm. We remember it for its ending, the pure joy of that mm-hmm. ending. Uh, but it, we go through a lot of hardship to, <laughs> to get yeah. that ending. 
Uh, I mean, it's a movie about a man who's, uh, you know, about to commit suicide mm-hmm. and is saved from that and gets to, you know, see what his life would have looked like or see what life would have looked like had he never been born. And he comes to realize the way we all touch each other's lives and he renews a sense to live. And, you know, that story, it, it covers many decades in the Jimmy Stewart's life, the, the character's life, and it encompasses, you know, joy and happiness and the joy of, of children and forming a family to the utter despair of, of thinking that your life doesn't matter, that you made poor choices, that your daily existence is insignificant. All these things come up. And these are all things that I think we can all relate to at some point in our lives. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why the movie touches everyone so much. Mm-hmm. It's also just impeccably written, directed, acted. I mean, the production value is Yeah, I think there's an expectation at Christmas, very high expectation. And then when it, of, of, of something better that's around the corner, you know? No question. Um, yeah, it's like I say in the book, we, you know, we want the spirit of the season to somehow win, to, to come through and win in the end, in right. any Christmas movie, in whatever shape or form that movie takes Mm -hmm. and um yeah i mean it's wonderful life is the ultimate in that i think so now and another movie that i love which is the bishop's wife and you Uh, told me before we started it had a kind of a troubled uh interesting backstory it really did you know this was made a year or two after it's a wonderful life i Mm -hmm. believe um, it's also about an angel who comes down to help a character, uh, David Niven. There, I love angel movie. I've always that I'm a sucker for those. I think Chris, Christmas setting makes us accept those kinds mm, of stories yeah. a little more. So Cary Grant comes down to basically help steer David Niven mm-hmm. back on track. And David Niven is is the bishop, and Loretta Young is the bishop's wife who starts falling in love with yeah. Cary Grant. I guess who could blame her, right? Yeah. And um, so. This movie uh, is very popular, but it was so troubled that the producer, Sam Goldwyn, shut it down after a few weeks, replaced the original director, switched Cary Grant and David Niven, who originally had been playing the other roles, and after a few months started production up again um, and made the movie we we know and love. He also had the sets, most of them, entirely rebuilt. Uh-huh. Sam Goldwyn was meticulous. This is a very typical story of Samuel Goldwyn. Mm-hmm. Um, everything you read and hear about him, he he was a real. I mean, he, you could say he was a micromanager in terms right. of this, but but not in a way that wasn't well taken. I mm-hmm. think everyone really respected him. In fact, while the movie was on hiatus and they were retooling it, he won the Irving Thalberg Award for the second time in his career. So he was very respected in the industry. Um, another movie that uh, I want to talk about because I had never heard of this one, Beyond Tomorrow, and you just rem- you just had mentioned it. So tell me about Beyond Tomorrow. Beyond Tomorrow is a real favorite of mine. It's also very. It's not maybe not that well known, but it's yeah. easy to see. It's in the public domain. It's been mm-hmm. released on DVD by many distributors. It'll be on TCM again this December, along with many of these others. Oh, great! And um, I love this movie because uh, it's it's a real film buffs film. It's the cast is entirely character actors. Uh, there are no major stars in the film. And yet it has a very touching and um, fascinating premise that starts as a sort of a very warm, romantic story and then delves into fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, these three old men characters who live in New York, played by Harry Carey Sr., Charles Winninger, and... Um, Oh, gosh. Blanking on the third. Who am I forgetting? We can look it up in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Keep talking. Anyway, they 
they help this young couple played by Richard Carlson and Gene Parker mm-hmm. sort of come together in this whimsical way. And then they, in halfway through the film, they die in a plane crash, but their ghosts come back and they... Sounds amazing. They, they Michael keep, O'Brien, James Houston, Madame Tanya. No, you're, you're reading the character names, <laughs> not the actor names. That is so funny. Oh my god. I don't know anything. <laughs> I like that. Madam though. Tanya, that was she was a good actor. I was like, Who's... <laughs> Okay, Charles, let me start again. Charles Winnegar, Richard Carlson, Maria Ospinskaya, we love her, Gene Parker, Helen Vincent, C. Aubrey Smith. C. Aubrey Smith, that's who I was trying to think. Harry Carey. How could I forget C. Aubrey and Smith? Rob LaRock. Oh, yeah. Rod LaRock was a famous silent star. Uh who a has name. a very small role in this film. Oh. I think he later became a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but C. Aubrey Smith, how could I forget him? He's one of my all-time favorite character actors. Anyway, so they, they basically, from beyond the grave, they still try and help manipulate these two young lovers to stay together. It's a very... Wait a minute. I've, every movie I've said so far is ghosts and angels. <laughs> the growing theme here. Um, now, some of the more... Mo- well, okay, before we get to the more modern ones. So, so, so what are some of the movies that did not make the cut? Ah, well, there are some in the classic era and some in the modern era. That yes. Make the cut. In the classic era, if I could have added one more, it probably would have been uh, a film called It Happened on Fifth Avenue, mm-hmm. which is a sort of Capra-esque story made in the mid-40s mm-hmm. uh, with Victor Moore as a, a homeless guy who takes over the mansion of a rich New Yorker when the rich New Yorker goes to Florida for the mm-hmm. holidays. He does this every December, and he invites all his hobo friends to come in, and they, they live there. Um, complications ensue. Wow. Um, I like that one. That sounds good. It's, it'll be on TCM as well, I think, Oh, good. Okay. So so some movies, and, even though they're not in the book, will hopefully be on TCM. Oh, yeah, sure. Because oh, there, there are many more than 30. Yeah. Um, in the modern era, I, I was very sad that I couldn't include Bad Santa, that is oh. a favorite of mine. Yes. Um, you know, it's definitely a, a very R-rated film. Right. Um, but it's a it's so well done and so funny. And, you know, I think we, we all need a little bit of edge and cynicism in our yeah. Christmas movies to counter the ones that are, that are more about joy. Now, do you know at all about... There's a little bit of controversy with Bad Santa because there's two versions of Bad Santa. There is the released studio version... And then there's Terry Zweigoff spent, you know, like five years putting out his original cut. So I've seen both and they're, it's really interesting. They're, they are different, but they're both valid. His is just a little bit more like Ghost World. Mm, Interesting. It's a, it's a little less like raunchy funny and it's a little bit more deep Christmas film. Interesting. Do you think it would have been the reverse? You would have, we would have thought that the studio version would have been more like mm-hmm. that, and his I, version would have been raunchier. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I know. So that's an interesting uh, contrast. Um, so another movie that I love is Gremlins, which are with our friend Joe Dante, and yeah. that's an unexpected Christmas film. You know, it is. I'm going to tell you uh, an embarrassing secret. What? That I have about the film. I had never seen it until I did this book. But that's awesome. <laughs> it probably missed your your era. Isn't yeah, it? Well, no, I was, when it came out, I was a teenager. Really? Because uh, I'm a little early teen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I came out 84, I believe. So uh-huh. I would have been like 13, 14. And Pretty pers- we all have movies that we somehow just missed. Totally. That was one of them for me. Yeah. And I remember at the time, I had the impression that it was just a total gross-out gore fest. And right. I've never really been that into that type of film. Yeah. So um, I went, when I watched it for this book, it was actually with a little bit of trepidation. 
And then I was like, what, what was I thinking? This movie is hilarious. It's yeah. brilliant. It's funny. It's much more funny than it is oh. horrible. You know, like scary. It's not really gory. Yeah. It's, and um, the whole thing, it's uh, it, it sends up It's a Wonderful Life. It sends up all sorts of Christmas movies. It yeah. sort of is about Christmas movies in a way. Yes, that's what I think. It's made by someone who has a great knowledge of movies, and there's a lot of inside jokes uh, in it. But I love uh, Gremlins. I think that's great. Okay, another classic, Miracle on 34th Street. Oh, uh, yeah. If, uh, and... Uh, is that's another one that's so appealing never gets you know you never get tired of watching that no and one thing that i really love about that film is it also ends up if you look at it again it has much more cynicism in it than you remember mm-hmm. it's, it's not a cynical film but it acknowledges the way that we all sort of get fed up with the commercialism and cynicism of the Christmas right. season. We all do it to some degree every year. And that movie incorporates that into its story in a very clever way, especially in the trial sequence where they put Santa on trial. Yeah, and that's great. And the different, um, the different <laughs> players in that scene all have their own uh, sort of off-screen pressures that they're dealing with. Uh-huh. And uh, it's very, very clever. What about Home Alone? How, I love Home Alone. That that I always tend to watch. I love John Hughes movies anyway, but I love Home Alone. It really Alone. holds up, doesn't it? I, the the first one, even the second one I kind of like, but that yeah. first one does really, really work. I think it's... And it, it really works as a Christmas film because, yeah. you know, here's this kid. He wakes up and the first thing he does is he celebrates. <laughs> you know, his wish came true. He, his family's gone. He can wa- eat popcorn and, and watch TV all day and make a yeah. mess. But then he, you know, he starts to miss his family because Christmas is coming and he realizes Christmas isn't really the same without having one's family around. Yeah. And that is not the only, uh, you know, storyline of the film, obviously, but it's a major part of it. Mm -hmm. And by the time he reunites with Catherine O'Hara at the end, you know, it's very touching. It's actually a very touching scene. Yeah, I I love it. Another thing I love about Home Alone is it incorporates a great Christmas soundtrack. Oh, yes. So many of these movies do. Yeah. Um, by the way, one other thing to add about Home Alone is that yeah. um, Chris Columbus directed it. He had written Gremlins. That was his big entree. That's right. He wrote it as a as a writing sample, and it yeah. caught the eye of Steven Spielberg, who loved it and sort of helped him shape it from something less outright horror and gory, which it originally was, mm-hmm. uh, to something a little more you know friendly to audiences. Um, and yeah, his career was off and running. And what? And you also cover some musicals like Meet Me in St. Louis. It's another sort of classic Christmas film. And Sad, the famous. Yes, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. If if the movie had only had that song mm-hmm. and no, no other part of it was set over Christmas, it would right. still be a Christmas film because that song is so so famous and it captures so much of the longing that we feel at Christmas time, the nostalgia. Um, you know, the movie is about two hours and less than a quarter of it takes place during the Christmas season. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people would say, well, then it's not a Christmas movie because most of the film is not set during Christmas. Right. But um, but th- there is a case, I think, where the, the Christmas portion is mm-hmm. key to the conflicts in that film. You know, what will happen if the family is going to move to St. Louis? The whole family, you know, falls apart because of that possibility. And right. On Christmas Eve, they find a way of resolving that and becoming a family again. So mm-hmm. so Christmas is used that way, but also just, I think, in the way the whole film is about family and the way, the, the ideal ways that a family 
can behave together. You know, it's mm-hmm. a very nostalgic, idealistic view at that. But that's you know, we 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 want that at, at Christmas time, especially. Um, and I think it really is a Christmas film because of it. Now, the the trivia I always heard about that scene, I don't know if it's true or not, that she said that Vincent Minnelli told her her dog was going to die or something. Is that Margaret? Oh, Margaret O'Brien. Yeah. Uh, I've, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I've read varying things. I never asked her. We used to, she'd oh. always be around at the, a lot of the TCM film festivals. I never asked. Um, that's her. that's true. I think she has said that it is. I think she has told that story actually. Back in the day, so I, I would get in there, kid. Her. But look, that's a that's a powerful scene. You know, Judy oh. Garland sings "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas," Car- and Margaret O'Brien goes out and whacks the heads off all the snow people that she's yeah. built. And it's trauma. I mean, that is a scene of genuine childhood trauma. And um, that again, you know, there's a another case of um, some recognizable emotional element of the Christmas season that isn't all happiness and joy. It can, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of traumas are also exacerbated by the season. Yes. And there's also White Christmas, another great musical. How many, there yeah. aren't too many. How many Christmas musicals are there? Well, in this book, there's Holiday Inn, mm-hmm. Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, White Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are the only full-fledged musicals. There are, of course, others that have, you know, good yeah. soundtracks or famous songs in them. There are other musicals, too. I mean, some people would call Auntie Mame a Christmas film. Um, uh, the Shop Around the Corner was remade as a musical in the good old summertime. That's true. So there are others out there. Uh, do you li- are, are you a fan of White Christmas? I, I prefer Holiday Inn. But, yeah, um, me too. But I, I understand the appeal of White Christmas. It's, it's really all about nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And one, the thing I find so interesting is that the song White Christmas was written by Irving Berlin in uh, 1939, 1940. Mm-hmm. And when it made its debut on film in Holiday Inn, it was used um, romantically. It was used to link uh, Bing Crosby and Marjorie Reynolds in love. It then, in the years that followed, became, of course, the all-time most popular right. song. And it became very identified with nostalgia because... Uh, it was so popular during World War II, and it mm-hmm. made soldiers around the world, you know, think, yeah. of, think of home. So by the time you make White Christmas in 1954, it is completely identified with nostalgia and not mm-hmm. romance anymore. And that film was really geared towards the millions of veterans in the audience who now could reminisce not about you know home from the vantage point of being in a foxhole in Europe somewhere but right. reminisce about their time in the military with all their you know brother soldiers mm-hmm. and, and sisters and who served in the armed forces so it sort of was about nostalgia on many levels yeah so in that sense it actually is a very um complex film yeah that's interesting i wonder if people even realize the phrase it has so much meaning for you know i'll be home for christmas and what that mean and the World War Two movies and yeah, you know all of that association. So I want I have a question for you. How do you go about when you get all the the photos and things like that? I'm always curious about that. Like, how do you go? You know, get the rights. You have to go around to every studio to get the posters and the right because this is it's such a fun book to look at. It's got all these great pictures. How do you go about getting the pictures? Well, thanks. It was always uh, conceived as sort of a gift book in terms uh-huh. of its look. So it was, uh, you know, the, the publisher and TCM, they wanted it to look like a Christmas present in yeah. a way, very colorful. Yeah. Um, 
uh, it, this is the joy of doing a book for TCM. They, I don't have to deal with the rights <laughs> issues. If I did this book on my own, it would not have all these pictures oh, I in see, it. I see. TCM has an image database that I was able to mine. Oh, there were several cool. other films that were harder to find uh, images for, but yeah. we did. And you know, the lawyers at Turner are able to clear all the rights and do everything that's necessary to use them. Uh, here's a question for you. Is uh, anyone in the book, who's around from some of these Christmas movies so that we can we can promote them now? I mean, obviously, Catherine O'Hara is around. Sure. Well, certainly from the ones made after 1970, Gremlins, most people are right? around. I'm going to look at the, oh, and we mi- I missed The Apartment. Oh, the Apartment. Now, Another there's, great there's a movie that a lot of people don't think of as a Christmas movie. You're right. Subtle. Um, but it's set during the season, and it really, uh, boy, talk about one that captures the alienation and loneliness and despairing aspects of the Christmas season. Yeah. That does it. I love that. But it also, it's a, it's a sweet romantic comedy that I think yeah, has a very uplifting ending. Oh, I love The Apartment. Okay, why is Lion in Winter a Christmas movie? Ah. Go. <laughs> it's about the Christmas reunion of a dysfunctional family. Okay. And what is more Christmassy than that? What family doesn't have some version of that right. in the holiday season? It just so happens that they're a royal family. It just so happens that it's the 12th century and it's the home yes. of the castle in France. Okay. But it's the whole movie is about <laughs> Hepburn and O'Toole, the, you know, uh, King Henry and Eleanor of Aquitaine and their right. sons battling each other and manipulating each other to try and figure out who will ascend to the throne. Yeah. And so it's one of the juiciest scripts ever written. It's so entertaining. Yeah. And there actually are quite a few references to Christmas and the holiday season throughout. It's so Um, funny. I didn't realize that. The... uh... Okay, the na- then we get into the the National Lampoon, the Christmas movies, oh, yeah, which are so much a part of my childhood. They're so fun. I know they're great. I really I, those are my some of my favorite. And getting together with the relatives and everything goes wrong. I love. You have a picture here of when the turkey deflates. Yeah. Yes. I love that. There's of course again. It's just like Lion in Winter, Christmas gathering of a dysfunctional family. Right? Yes. It, it, yeah, Christmas is also made for comedy too. You no know, no question. Uh, and, you know, a, a lot of Christmas movies for people are have nothing to do with Christmas. But, you know, people love watching James Bond movies or Marx Brothers movies on Christmas because they're just pure Fred escapist musical comedy action. They're, they yeah. let you escape and they're professionally done and, you know, they bring families together, too. Okay, so now that you've done what what the book tell, – tell us when the book is out. It's coming out. October next, 9th. October 9th, coming out. Available and, for pre-orders now. Oh, you can yes. order it now. Yes. Absolutely. We love books, too, for Christmas. And uh, do you know what you're working on next? N- not yet. I'm <laughs> talking... I, I have a couple Come ideas on, now, I'm mulling is, over. This is your preview <laughs> for the next interview that you're always, they always ask you, which you always say, can I talk about my book now? But I'm, I'm discussing a couple possible ideas oh, okay. T. Sam and my editor. Maybe something having to do with movies about the city of Los Angeles, the way it's been portrayed. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm still yeah. figuring it out. That might be fun. There's so, there's so many good, oh, so many good movie themes. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, definitely. Well, anyway, Jeremy, it's a uh, thrill to have you here and please come back anytime. It was my great pleasure, Ileana. Thank you. Uh, you can find Jeremy on Twitter at 
J-T underscore Arn, A-R-N. And his book, Christmas at the Movies, comes right. out October 9th. Thank you, Jeremy. And you can buy Ileana's book, I Blame Dennis Hopper, in yes, bookstores and at Amazon. You That's should right. buy it. It's a good read. Also, check out our Facebook page. The website for the show is ilianaspodcast.com. That's right. And as we always say, my life, uh, your life is a movie, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally a movie. I don't know what's going on tomorrow. But uh, your life is a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Have a great movie. You're the star of your own movie. Thank you, Tamara. And thank, thank you. you, Jeremy. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. Time. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.